Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Church's moral teaching. I remember very clearly 
the truth. 
Yeah. 
extra piece of cheese and jam tonight that you weren't supposed to, right? That extra glass of wine? Okay, you thought it was good. It tasted good at the time. Uh, this is a, a fundamental of moral theology. We all say to do the good and to avoid the, the evil. Seek what appears or we perceive to be good and then avoid what, what we perceive to be evil. And our Lord is bringing it along further and saying, when you think about what is good, you're thinking about what is about God. And so morality uh, cannot be just horizontal. We have to look up in order for it to realize its full purpose. And then I take one last quote there. Only God can answer the question about the good because he is the good. That's it. And so whether we realize it or not, when we seek to do what is good, we're already seeking God. We're, we're designed that way. We're hardwired to seek him out. A little later on uh, in the document, actually at the beginning of the section 2, the Holy Father gives a, uh, a summary of what he had just done. And um, it's almost like it was never So this brings 
leads us into what I'm going to say are already the moral implications, the eternal implications of morality. Uh, God rewards the just and, and, and punishes the unjust. Third, what's about Christian discipleship? Because one thing that the rich young man realizes is that he is insufficient. Our Lord says, Come follow me. And he uh, and I didn't, I didn't actually read it, but with the last verse, uh, the rich young man goes away sad with his many possessions. He can't give the response. What is necessary for morality is what? Grace. And so it's a wonderful thing to keep in mind because it, it, it guarantees that our faith is all connected. So what enables us to act in a morally upright way is not our own effort. It is God's grace working within us and conforming us more and more to Christ. If we don't recognize that insufficiency, uh, then we become like the Pharisees. And suddenly, moral uprightness is our own achievement instead of being the work of God's grace within us and our free chosen cooperation with His grace and His law. Which brings me to the fourth point that the Holy Father uh, uh, points out uh, in that reflection. The gift of the Holy Spirit. What uh, can we have in mind as we're approaching Pentecost? It is the Holy Spirit's life within us that makes us able to live the Christian, the Christian life, to live Christian morality. Christian morality is not just avoiding sin, it is becoming like Jesus Christ. In fact, it is being Jesus live Jesus, as St. Francis says, that's the motto of the, of the uh, oblates of St. Francis says. That, that's what it means to be Christian. His life is being lived in us. So we can say with St. Paul, I live no longer I, but Christ lives in me. And so the person of Jesus Christ becomes central in this discussion of how important this is in, in the life of the church, um, it, it, it would be good just to, to, to point out that a lot of the moral theology had, um, had become sort of just manuals, just to let's just break everything down and dissect the situations and tell people like what they can do and not do, things like that. Or casuist trading, I'm sure you've ever heard that term, casuist trading. So, um, the Jesuits were famous for it, and it was, it was basically taking a particular situation and saying, okay, what's the proper moral response here? And so some people took it too far. I mean, there, there's a good thing here because it's sort of it's a good exercise in applying moral principles to particular situations. But some people took it too far, and, and that became sort of all of uh, morality was that. What John Paul II does in this encyclical is he, he, he puts all of moral theology focused person of Jesus Christ. He is the one we ask, whether he is the one we have in mind when we seek the good, whether we realize it or not. It is by his gift of the Spirit that we are enabled to live the good. It is all focused on him. So, chapter 2. Chapter 2 is probably where all of the uh, press reporters went to first. Because this is where uh, John Paul II gets into 
themselves. Uh, so it, it shouldn't surprise us and it shouldn't scandalize or upset us when we hear that the Pope, Papa, Father, is, is correcting, is making corrections. We want that. So, so that uh, it's an expression of his, of his love. is a charity to those who might be misled as well. So, one thing that I have is actually a rather lengthy quote uh, from the beginning of chapter 2. Now, this encyclical was addressed primarily to the bishops. In addressing this encyclical to you, my brother bishops, it is my intention to state the principles necessary for, for, what, for discerning what is contrary to sound doctrine drawing attention to those elements of the Church's moral teaching, which today appear particularly exposed to error, ambiguity, or neglect. So that's what he's going to do in Chapter 2. This is a very technical part of the, of the encyclical. Chapter 1, great spiritual reading. Take that with you uh, before the Blessed Sacrament. Make it part of your prayer. It's wonderful spiritual reading. Chapter 2,
benevolent towards man. In other words, if we want to use this freedom for its genuine purpose, we, we place it in the hands of the one who created it. So there's no conflict there. Um, he calls special attention in paragraph 46 to something that is actually increasingly prevalent in our society, has only increased since the release of this document. And that is the uh, rejection of any physical limits and seeing the body as hostile to genuine human freedom. Because people want to do whatever they want, and the body doesn't always enable us to do that. Now what we see increasingly in our culture is a view of the human person as just a soul that happens to have a body, but the body in no way sets any limits whatsoever. This is typically in the area of sexual morality, right? He comes back to the age-old truth of the church that we are combined souls, a body-soul unity. So when we talk about human freedom, we can never talk about it at the cost of the body. To be free does not mean, for example, to change gender. That is not freedom because it is going contrary to the very nature of who we are. We don't become more free by becoming, by, by contradicting our own nature. In this regard, he talks about, this is a great phrase, and it's typical of John Paul II, the moral meaning of the body. The moral meaning of the body. Increasingly, people want to do with their bodies whatever they want to do. For pleasure, whatever. And, um, but we still all recognize the moral meaning of the body. The body is not incidental to who we are. And if there's any doubt about that, turn to your neighbor and strike him in the face. Don't do that. Don't do that. But we all know that the body has meaning. If somebody strikes my body, I don't, I don't say that. In my body. It is me. And the Pope is simply extending this, this intuition that we all have and saying, well, there is a moral meaning of the body. And human freedom cannot be achieved at the cost of that. The next section that he takes up is regarding conscience and truth. Um, it's a great quote he had. He, he, he gives um, from St. Bonaventure. Confidence is like God's herald and messenger. It does not command things on its own authority, but commands that is coming from God's authority, like a herald when he, when, he, when he proclaims the edict of the king. This is why conscience has a binding force. John Henry Newman calls the conscience the aboriginal vicar of Christ. We've had the vicar of Christ on earth, right? The Pope. But even before the Pope was here, God had already placed in each one of us the conscience. What's the conscience? It is that ability to discern what is right and wrong. And here, the Pope is uh, fighting against a very strong uh, mindset in our culture, which is to say that conscience gets to determine what is right and wrong. So people may say, well, you know, I 
to us so that we can discern what is right and wrong. And the conscience either gives us approval for an action that we're thinking about, or it tells us don't do it. Some of you have heard me compare, make this comparison before. I like it. It's a good one, I think. The conscience is a moral GPS system. Think about how your GPS work is great, right? Okay, so you turn on the GPS and it tells you where to go and how you get to a place, get to where you're going, and get there safely. But in order for your GPS to work properly, it has to be properly calibrated. Right? If your GPS is not up to date or whatever else, uh, you got a problem. You're going to go down the wrong road and it might be uh, the end of the road. That is a good way of understanding the conscience. Uh, there is, it is a faculty within us that immediately is, is looking for that signal, looking for that signal from God. Okay, how shall I know? How shall I live? What's the proper path? What is the way? We're designed to seek it out. And we go in that direction. And if we do not go through the effort of forming the conscience, then it's like driving with a bad GPS system. We're still obeying it, but it's taking us to some very bad places. Uh, there's another line from Colonel Newman that is quoted in typical. Conscience has rights because it has duties. A very, very good line. Something very important to keep in mind. What has been heard for many decades now is that uh, uh, we have to do we have to obey our conscience. Absolutely true. But it's only half of the equation. The other part is we have to form our conscience. Uh, yes, we have to obey it, but we also have to make sure that our conscience is guiding us correctly. Guiding us correctly. One without the other is incomplete. And so the church is teaching. What are the church is teaching? That's forming a GPS system. That's giving the update. What's that regular confession? What's happening there? The priest is forming your conscience. You come in, you may have seen something as simple that's not really simple. The priest might have to correct you, so actually, that was wrong. Or, <laughs> you might have asked something as simple that when it was simple, the priest is, you know, you're going to bring the GPS system back to the manufacturer. So you need it to get properly calibrated. And you go to confession and say, okay, I need this. My conscience is being calibrated again. Uh, because we are fallen. Two specific things that the Pope condemned, and this is what made the headlines. One is what's called fundamental option. And the theology goes like this. The person who makes a fundamental option in the core of his or her being for God, that is not undone by Choices. And so if that fundamental option is still intact, the particular choices are not simple. We're not saints. I hope you can see how this is a recipe for chaos. And the Pope takes us on, takes his head on. This, by the way, was a theory that I had heard. Um, I, I heard articulated by priests when I was in college. I don't, you know, the priest may have picked it up, uh, but from some uh, otherwise trust, trustworthy um, theologian. 
sort of have to measure out 
We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist. Pray for us.